Well, greetings to all our brethren around the world, and welcome to our guests. When disasters and trials strike a nation, a region, or a church, or a family, they test the strength of character. Will people help one another? Or will the strong brutalize the weak? How strong is the character of our nation? And how strong is your personal character? Hurricane Katrina tested the character of the United States, and its effects will continue to test the nation. You've been reading the headlines. The Wall Street Journal yesterday had these headlines. Desperation neared despair among tormented Katrina survivors. Disaster zone amid chaos. Louisiana calls for help. Damage to oil and gas facilities pushes U.S. closer to energy crisis. Man-made mistakes increase devastation of natural disasters. New Orleans in chaos. Rescue plan under fire. And this is from, uh, again, the Wall this is Reuters.com. New Orleans fell deeper into chaos on Friday when gangs roaming the streets and corpses rotting in the sun a full four days after Hurricane Katrina lashed the city and exposed federal aid efforts as a failure. Business Week had this headline, Feeding the Oil Monster with a Dixie Cup. Tapping the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is a welcome move, but energy players and consumers still fear a supply squeeze and price hikes. Let Katrina be a warning. This is from Business Week magazine. Here's what the hurricane can teach about handling natural disasters and energy policy better. And then the headlines continually. Anarchy in New Orleans. New Orleans plunged into anarchy with its mayor and hospitals begging for help through the media. And then another one uh, from Reuters. Anarchy and looting have broken out and flooded New Orleans. Then Wall Street Journal. Another headline. Storm costs could hit $100 billion. Katrina is already expected to be the costliest natural disaster in history. I mentioned this other one from the Wall Street Journal, the headline, Man-Made Mistakes Increased Devastation of Natural Disasters. Why would you build a city in a flood zone? And, of course, this has happened all over the world. But sometimes it's forced by politics, governments, in Bangladesh, for example, poor people have to build in the flood zone. They know typhoons are going to come and devastate them, but they have no choice in many cases. And so, in his 2000 book, Acts of God, The Unnatural History of Natural Disaster in America, Professor Steinberg, that's Theodore Steinberg, documented how much of the toll from natural disasters from the 1886 Charleston earthquake the 1990s hurricane has been exacerbated by human actions. The levees were built, I heard a report, perhaps you did too, were built for a Category 3 hurricane. They didn't build them for a Category 5 hurricane. Isn't that perhaps tempting God when you don't prepare for what you know may come along the line? And so Professor Steinberg argues that God is getting a bum rap. This is an unnatural disaster if ever there was one, not an act of God. Well, we would qualify his statements. Says Professor Steinberg, an environmental historian at Case Western Reserve University, Cleveland, if the potential for mass death and destruction 
From extreme weather existed anywhere in the United States, it existed in New Orleans. In other words, he could have predicted. We could all predict that disaster could happen there. Now, was this destruction caused by God? Was it caused by man? Or as the Charlotte Observer was suggesting today, there are those earth people who look to the earth goddess, and maybe the earth goddess was, uh, you know, responsible for what happened there. So if you want to know the answer to the question, uh, then, of course, you want to come to our website, tomorrow's website, and read Mr. Meredith's commentary, Why Natural Disasters. And then Dr. Scott Waddell has uh, posted a commentary earlier, Hurricane Katrina, Why? And you just heard Mr. Meredith uh, read from the World Ahead comments that we do need to show concern and compassion and mercy and that we do have a disaster relief fund, and that is available also on the website, tomorrowsworld.org, and you can donate online. When there are problems, we want to be a part of the solution. But human nature just seems to display the worst when there is no government, and anarchy is without government. Let's turn to 2 Timothy, the third chapter, 2 Timothy 3. The headlines repeatedly mentioned the word anarchy, which is no government. 2 Timothy, the third chapter, verse 1. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. We are living in the last days. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, Traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. Or, as the New King James has it, unloving, forgiving, verse 3, unloving, for unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, or incontinent is what the King James has. They don't have self-control. Now, when you have anarchy and you have human nature at its worst in some of these tragedies and some of these disasters, the world looks at the United States and wonders what is going on. For example, Reuters News Service, September 2nd, yesterday, 10.08 a.m. Eastern Time, had this headline, World Stunned as U.S. Struggles with Katrina by Andrew Gray. London, the world was, has watched amazed that the planet's only superpower struggles the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, with some saying that chaos has explode, exposed flaws and deep divisions in American society. World leaders and ordinary citizens have expressed sympathy with the people of the southern United States, whose lives were devastated by the hurricane and the flooding that followed. But many have also been shocked by the images of disorder beamed around the world, Looters roaming the debris-strewn streets and thousands of people gathered in New Orleans waiting for the authorities to provide food, water, and other aid. Anarchy in the USA, declared Britain's best-selling newspaper, The Sun. Apocalypse Now, headed the Germans' Handelsblatt daily. The pictures of catastrophe, which has killed 
Hundreds and possibly thousands have evoked memories of the crises in the world's poorest nations, such as last year's tsunami in Asia, which left more than 230,000 people dead or missing. But some view the response to those disasters more favorably than the lawless aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. This one individual, uh, Sajiwa Chinthaka, age 36, as he watched a cricket match in Colombo, Sri Lanka, says, quote, I am absolutely disgusted. After the tsunami, our people, even the ones who lost everything, wanted to help the others who were suffering. Not a single tourist in the tsunami was mugged. Now, with all this happening in the U.S., we can easily see where the civilized part of the world's population is. So the world looks at us, and they say, well, you think you're the civilized people? Well, let's take a look at what's going on down there in New Orleans. As Mr. Meredith said in the announcements in his World Ahead comments, yes, we in Charlotte will do all we can to warn our peoples of the real meaning of these awful events and encourage them to genuinely repent. And so we have people who need to repent. And obviously the government uh, did not uh, do everything it should have in preparing for this case. It was rather late coming when you have uh, the request by the mayor to have 30,000 troops come in. But as a church, we must also show true Christian love and compassion for those in need. Let us pray that God will give us the right balance in pursuing both of these objectives. And let us pray fervently for those right now suffering from one of the world's worst natural disasters in American history. Thank you for your zealous help and cooperation. Well, we, brethren, as a church, have endured tragedies this past year at the loss of brethren in ministry. And we have mourned our loss, but we have committed ourselves to accomplish Christ's mission. How are we going to accomplish that mission? Most of us know the answer to that question. Let's turn again to Matthew 28 and verse 18. Matthew 28 and verse 18. Christ told His disciples and us, of course, by extension down to this end time, to go therefore and teach all nations, verse 19, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. But how are we going to do that? Verse 18 gives the answer. And Jesus came and spoke unto them and saying, All power or all authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. So that's how the work is going to be done because Christ has all authority, all power in heaven and in earth. And He's going to empower His servants who are yielded to fulfill that mission and to fulfill that work. You know Zechariah 14.6, It's not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Eternal. We face many challenges and problems. What conditions characterize many of the Church of God brethren today? We know it's a Laodicean attitude. Many have allowed themselves to be deceived. And the key to that is allowed themselves to be deceived. Let's turn back to Jeremiah 5. <clears throat> along that line. We have a mission to perform, but we have challenges along the way. And some of our brethren have, fell, have fallen into this trap. In Jeremiah 5.30, they've gone after false teaching, false doctrine. 
Jeremiah 5, verse 30. A wonderful and horrible thing is committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests bear rule by their means. And the amazing thing is, the last part of this verse, and my people love to have it so. If the church pastor says, look, you can commit all kinds of sexual perversion, that's okay. Then they have permission. My people love to have it so. Because they want their way and they want the religious authorities to put their permission, put their approval on ungodly behavior. And what will you do in the end thereof? So we are facing a Laodicean attitude. We're facing apostasy. Let's look at the Revelation, the third chapter, at that attitude of Laodiceanism. Revelation 3. The lukewarm church, as it's called, in some Bible headings. But many have forgotten their mission. Revelation 3, verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginner, as it should be, of the creation of God. He's the originator. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm... And neither cold or hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. Now, as Mr. Meredith has pointed out, their problem is not doctrine. Their problem is a spiritual attitude, a spiritual condition. Because you say, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and know not that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And he says, I counsel you to buy of me gold tried in the fire, and that you may be rich, and white raiment that you may be clothed, and the shame of your nakedness does not appear. Now, this nakedness is symbolic of sinfulness. But if we're clothed with white linen, that is symbolic of God's righteousness. And do not appear, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Now, Jesus says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. So I hope, brethren, that we take that to heart. I hope that all of us will not have to be chastened in a great tribulation, that we decide in our own hearts and minds we want to repent, we want to be zealous. And God will give us that attitude if we really want it. Now, how would you describe your character, your zeal, your drive, your discipline? If we are to be successful in accomplishing Christ's mission, We need His faith, we need His power, we need His gifts. One of His gifts of godly character is that of discipline. Do you have self-discipline? Do you have self-control? Do you have determination and drive? Let's turn to 2 Timothy, the first chapter. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 7. Discipline from Nelson's Illustrated Bible Dictionary is as follows. To train by instruction and control, referring to 1 Corinthians 9.27, which we'll read a little later. The biblical concept of discipline has both a positive side, instruction, knowledge, and training, and a negative aspect, correction, punishment, and reproof. Those who refuse to submit to God's positive discipline by obeying His laws will experience God's negative 
discipline through his wrath and judgment. That is, those who refuse to submit to God's positive discipline. So parents have to discipline their children. As uh, some of you who know the old uh, television host for the children's program, Mr. Rogers, uh, he said this as follows, and it's from a book, uh, Mr. Rogers Talks with Parents, chapter six, 6. Quote, Love is at the root of all healthy discipline. The desire to be loved is a powerful motivation for children to behave in ways that give their parents pleasure rather than displeasure. It may even be our own long-ago fear of losing our parents' love that now sometimes makes us uneasy about setting and maintaining limits. We're afraid we'll lose the love of our children when we don't let them have their way. Love is at the root of all healthy discipline. And so there is that aspect of discipline. But before we go on to what I'm going to emphasize today, and that is the positive aspect of discipline, let's take a look at the corrective aspect in Proverbs 15 and verse 10. Proverbs 15 and verse 10. Lawrence Balter, a child psychologist and author in his book, Who's in Control?, writes something similar. He says, quote, Discipline isn't just punishing, forcing compliance, or stamping out bad behavior. Rather, discipline has to do with teaching proper deportment, caring about others, controlling oneself, and putting someone else's wishes before one's own when the occasion calls for it. So again, it has to do with positive teaching. Proverbs 15 and uh, verse 10. Correction is grievous unto him that forsakes the way. Oftentimes, correction uh, in other translations, this is the King James, is translated discipline. Is grievous unto him that forsakes the way, and he that hates reproof shall die. Those who don't want to be guided, those who don't want to be corrected, God says, are going to reap the fruits of it, they will die. So we need to pray for guidance. We need to pray for discipline. In fact, the word translated here, uh, that is for discipline, is musar. Uh, You can spell it M-U-W-C-A-R, which is the Strong's 3256, uh, translated or pronounced musar, which means properly chastisement, figuratively reproof, warning, or instruction, also restraint. So life teaches us lessons. If we're learning, if we're willing to learn those lessons, always ask God for His will and His guidance. Jeremiah did, Jeremiah 10, 23, where he says, The way of man is not within himself. It's not within man that walks to direct his steps. And then Jeremiah goes on to pray, and I I should ask you to raise your hands, but don't. How many of you have asked God to correct you in the last year or so? Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 10, 24, Correct me, O God, but with judgment, not in your anger, lest I be brought to nothing. We need God's guidance. And, of course, most of you know Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. You know, show me thy ways, O Lord. Teach me thy paths. You know, lead me in your truth and teach me. Oh, I'm sorry, that's Proverbs 20. That's Psalm 25. I got uh, my... Uh, reference mixed up. So let me look at uh, Proverbs 3. But we do need to ask God for correction. As I 
As I've told you before, I don't like to ask God for correction. And uh, when I do, I ask Him to do it mercifully and gently and help me to learn whatever lessons I need to learn. The nation ought to be learning lessons from Katrina. Is it? Will it? Learn those lessons? Proverbs 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. How many people look for success in life and yet never acknowledge God in all their ways? Oh, someone uh, told me the other day that uh, oh, he was looking for something for about an hour, I believe it was, couldn't find it, and then finally prayed and uh, found it in just minutes. I suggested, well, maybe if you prayed in the first place, you wouldn't have wasted a whole hour. So you acknowledge God in all your ways, and you ask Him to help you in your time of trial. We'll get into a a matter of uh, losing things perhaps a little later. But nonetheless, uh, we find here in Proverbs 15, verse 10, that we need to ask God for His guidance, and Musar, throughout the whole Old Testament, does have the, the broad length, the broad meaning, not only of correction and punishment, but of instruction and of, of learning. Now, God gives us awesome gifts, and one of the greatest gifts is in 2 Timothy 1.7. We've just uh, turned from that, but let's go back to 2 Timothy 1 and verse 7. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. The New King James Version has uh, what I've just read, but the NIV has self-discipline rather than sound mind. The NASB, the New American Standard Bible, has discipline. The Revised Standard Version has self-control. Moffat says, For God has not given us a timid spirit, but a spirit of power and love and discipline. So what is the meaning of this word that has been translated sound-mindedness or discipline. One authority commented on the Greek word as follows, quote, it seems to have two meanings as is often the case. The primary literal meaning is sound mind, the idea of coming to a rational balance view without illusion or foolishness. Discipline is thus implied as a secondary meaning since it takes such to not allow the mind to go wild, quote unquote, in irrational ways. Uh, William Barclay, in his commentary on uh, 2 Timothy, uh, says this, There was self-discipline. The word sophromisnos, one of those great Greek untranslatable words. Someone has defined it as the sanity of saintliness. Well, God has given you the sanity of saintliness as a gift. It is Christ alone who can give us, writes Barclay, William Barclay, that self-mastery which will keep us alike from being swept away and from running away. No man can ever rule others, and God has called us to be kings and priests and judges, to rule the world under Christ as servant leaders. He says, No man can ever rule others unless he has first mastered himself. Sophronismos is that divinely given self-control which makes a man a great ruler of others because he is first of all the servant of Christ and master of himself. 
That's from the letters to Timothy, Titus, and Philemon, the commentary by William Barclay, pages 144 and 145. Now let's turn to a New Testament example of discipline. By the way, the title of this sermon is The Gift of Discipline. Let's turn now to 1 Corinthians, the ninth chapter, 1 Corinthians 9. Well, God has given us the gift of the Spirit, and the Spirit of love and of power and of discipline or of a sound mind. The Apostle Paul was very aware of athletic activities. And so in 1 Corinthians 9.24, he says, Know you not that they which run a race run all, but one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain. He gives us a positive attitude. And every man that strives for the mastery is temperate in all things. He's moderate, self-controlled, temperate. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible or a imperishable. They do it to obtain a perishable crown. I therefore so run not as uncertainly, so fight I not as one that beats the air. You know, you have... Boxers used to do shadow boxing. They look at their shadow, and they're going to fight the shadow on the wall. And so he says, I'm, I'm not doing that, uh, not as one that beats the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. So the word for discipline, or in the King James it has, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. The Greek word is hupopi adzo, uh, which is a uh, derivative compound of two other words, uh, meaning to hit under the eye, uh, that is to buffet or disable an antagonist as a pugilist, figuratively to tease or annoy into compliance, subdue one's passions. So the Apostle Paul says that he beats his body. He, the New International Version has it, No, I beat my body and make it my slave. Is your body your slave, or does your body dictate to you appetites which you can't control? The NASU, which is the New American Standard Update, says, But I discipline my body and make it my slave. Well, how do you discipline yourself? Any of us who have been in athletics know, or in other kinds of disciplines, know how to discipline ourselves. When I was in uh, football in high school, I remember going out for football and it was quite, uh, I guess, took a little courage for me to even try out. And I remember it was such a tough day. I mean, the coach really put us through the paces. He tried to weed out the men from the boys, so to speak. And I remember walking up the hill back home with one of my buddies. I said, oh, that's too tough. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to quit. And, uh, you know, peers can influence you. And I felt, well, maybe I, maybe I should quit. I, I don't know. But the next day... The football coach was my mechanical drawing instructor, and he said, if some of you think you're of quitting, don't quit. Stick with it. And I'm glad I did. Even though we lost all of our football games that season, I was elected co-captain at the end of that season. And I think God was giving me opportunities for, for leadership. But in football, you have conditioning. You have aerobic exercise. You have muscle building. You have skill development, long-distance running. You have those who run 3 to 10 miles a day. You have Lance Armstrong, who uh, has won now, is it seven times? Seven times. The Grand Prix in France, bicycling. What, do you think he did it without discipline? 
Obviously, he trained and he trained. Now, others have uh, on the Discovery Channel or whatever have shown that he did not use drugs, that he has a, a, an extra genetic benefit, that he can pump twice as much blood in the same period of time throughout his body and his arteries than other athletes can do at the same time. So he has some other benefits uh, along with that. Uh, one of our uh, teenagers back in, uh, back in uh, San Diego was on the water polo team in uh, Rancho Bernardo. And she was out swimming every morning, 5 to 7 a.m., five days a week before going to school in the morning. Now, that's discipline. Our headquarters staff, as uh, some of them are bicycling regularly, which is very encouraging, around some of the park pathways. Think of the marching bands in high school. I just marvel at, at how these high school students can do all these jazzy movements, walk in various patterns, and still play a trumpet. I don't know how they do it, but it takes discipline and training. When I went to Fort Dix, New Jersey for military basic training in the Army back in 1959, it reinforced the discipline that I'd learned in football. We had a 50-mile hike with 50-pound uh, backpacks. We had to have everything precisely organized. Our clothes locker had everything neatly organized. You knew where your, your dress shirt was, your dress jacket was, where your khakis were, where your boots were. The footlocker was precisely organized. Your toothpaste, your toothbrush had to be precisely in one location. Everything was organized precisely. You were disciplined. You learned discipline. And I'm very thankful for the discipline that I learned. And then, of course, you crawling under live ammunition, under barbed wire, you also are disciplined, and you're very careful not to lift your head up too high. With live ammunition going over your head is a part of the training. Some individuals, however, do not exercise discipline. They're lacking some of that drive. Let's turn to Luke, the 17th chapter, Luke 17. They're just going along with this malaise of uh, being lukewarm or just going with the, along with the world. I'm just going to party, have fun. I'm not going to work hard. I'm not going to discipline myself. I'm not going to drive here in Luke 17 is a very memorable principle, and he says in verse 10, which you perhaps have it marked, So likewise you, when you shall have done all those things which are commanded you, Luke 17:10, say, We are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. Are you a profitable servant, or are you just doing what is required of you? Now, we need to fulfill our duty. There's no question about that. But the response that Jesus gave was in answer to the question, verse 5, and the apostles said unto the Lord, increase our faith. And so he says, uh, in other words, you need to be a profitable servant. Most of you are familiar, or I hope most of you are familiar, with the seven laws of success that Mr. Herbert Armstrong wrote about. That fourth law of success is Drive. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Waddale. <laughs> you see, we all need to apply that particular law. Mr. Armstrong wrote, A person may have chosen his goal, having it 
may have aroused tremendous ambition to achieve it. He may have started out educating and training himself for its accomplishment. He may even have good health and still have little or no progress toward its realization. After all, success is accomplishment. It is doing. They say an old dead fish can float downstream, but it takes a live one to swim up. An inactive person will not accomplishment. accomplish. Accomplishment is doing. Now comes the all-important law. The fourth success law, then, is draw. <laughs> I don't expect you to stand up every time, Dr. Cornell. The fourth success law is drive. And I've had to, in times past, just tell myself when I felt lazy, drive, 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 to get myself moving, demotivated. Half-hearted effort, writes Mr. Armstrong, might carry one a little way toward his goal, but it will never get him far enough to reach it. You will always find that the executive head of any growing successful organization employs drive. He puts a constant prod on himself. Do you put a constant prod on yourself? Mr. Armstrong tells the story of how when he was an idea man traveling around at age 22, and he was, had difficulty getting up in the morning. And he brought uh, an alarm clock, and, but he found himself turning it off and plunging back into bed. Uh, too drowsy to realize what he was doing. He said, I had to break the habit. I had to put a prod on myself. I needed an alarm clock that couldn't be turned off until I was sufficiently awake to get going for the day. So one night at the Hotel Patton in Chattanooga, Tennessee, I called a bellboy to my room. In those days, the customary tip was a dime. A half dollar then would be about the same effect that a $20 bill would be today. Now, when he wrote this, probably be more today like $50. I laid the silver half dollar on the dresser. Do you see that half dollar in there, son? I asked. Yes, sir. His eyes sparkling with anticipation. After ascertaining that he would be still on duty at 6.30 the next morning, I said, if you will pound on that door in the morning at 6.30 until I let you in, and then stay in this room and prevent me from getting back into bed until I am dressed, then you may have that half dollar. I found those bellboys would for a half-dollar tip even wrestle or fight with me to prevent my crawling back into bed. Thus, I put a prod on myself that broke the morning snooze habit and got me up and going. So he concludes that section, without energy, drive, constant propulsion, a person need never expect to become truly successful. Do you prod yourself at all? Do you drive yourself? I know when I was in the Army, uh, I believe it was 5 o'clock or 5.30, but uh, the way we started the morning was with a bugle, a trumpet, would blast. And you knew that was the time you had to get up. During World War II, there was a song that, uh, uh, Oh, how I hate to get up in the morning. Oh, how I hate to get out of bed. When you hear the trumpet call, you got to get up, you got to get up, you got to get up this morning. And I, you know, <laughs> there, of course, that was kind of ridiculing the trumpet getting you up in the morning. Oh, how I hate to get up in the morning. But we have to drive ourselves. I know some of you may have read uh, Melvin Laird's book or part of it, The Technique of Getting Things Done. He has a section on how uh, inventions that were given to try to prod people to get up in the morning. He mentions one about an invention of a bed, that he set the alarm, and when the alarm went off, the bed started to gently rock, but then it just kept exaggerating the rock until if he weren't out of bed, it would throw him out of bed. 
Then there was another one of a pan of water over his head, so it would just start dripping, but if he didn't get out of bed, the whole pan of water would come on his head. Another one, a student, uh, had a friend who was a, a security guard, and he had a a, a string tied around his finger out the window to, and down the first floor where the security guard would come by, you know, at 6 o'clock in the morning, and the security guard would yank on the, on the string, and the, his arm would go up, and he would be awakened. Well, we can discipline ourselves, that is, if we have a purpose in life. Many of us have talents, but are we using those talents to God's honor and to His glory? Do we have the character? Do we have the godly discipline to use those talents and to develop those talents? Author H. Jackson Brown, Jr. said the following, quote, Talent without discipline is like an octopus on roller skates. There's plenty of movement, but you never know if it's going to be forward, backwards, or sideways. Sorry, I had to laugh. Uh, you know, there is plenty of movement. But you never know if it's going to be forward, backwards, or sideways. That is, talent without discipline is like an octopus on roller skates. I think that's pretty, uh, pretty vivid. Many do, do live their lives accidentally, without purpose, without great goals and commitment. They live undisciplined lives. Frank Sinatra sang a song in the past called Rainbows I'm Inclined to Pursue. Lyrics by Sammy Kahn, music by Jimmy Van Heusen. And this was, these were the lyrics of this song. And does it not reflect attitudes of some today as well as it did back in Frank Sinatra's day? Call me irresponsible. Call me unreliable. Throw in undependable too. Do my foolish alibis bore you? Well, I'm not too clever. I just adore you. Call me unpredictable. Tell me I'm impractical. Rainbows I'm inclined to pursue. Call me irresponsible. Yes, I'm unreliable. But it's undeniably true. I'm irresponsibly mad for you. Well, cute love song. But at the same time, it's emphasizing this whole matter of let's just be so free. We have no discipline, no character, no control, no self-control. Let's be irresponsible. Let's be unpredictable. Let's be undependable. Now, maybe I hope that does not appeal to anyone in here, but it does to many in the world. God does instruct us to be reliable, responsible, and faithful servants, not unreliable, not irresponsible, not unpredictable. Godly character, and the, actually is demonstrated by lives that have purpose and discipline. But those, godly, those with godly character do not live their lives accidentally. They do not live unpredictable lives. Let's turn back to Genesis, the 22nd chapter. Genesis 22. Are you unpredictable? Here, God tested Abram or Abraham, Genesis, the 22nd chapter. And he knew after that test what Abraham's character was like. Genesis 22, verse 11. Genesis 22 and verse 11. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. That was at the moment when Abraham was going to sacrifice his son, Isaac, on the altar. 
And he said, Lay not your hand upon the lad, neither do you anything unto him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. God knew, after that test, Abraham's character. Let's turn back to Genesis 18, just a few pages back. Verse 19, he already knew characteristics of Abraham. But this was, of course, Genesis 22 was the major test. It says in verse 19 of Genesis 18, For I have known him that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord. Yes, there is a way to do justice and judgment that the Eternal may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. Or in the New King James, I have known him. Yes, God knew Abraham and called him a friend later on. So how much does God know about your character? Does he know, for example, that you will be on your knees praying tomorrow morning? Or does God say, oh, well, Jane or John or, you know, you never know what they're going to do tomorrow morning. Well, they may rush off the last minute without even acknowledging me. Or, well, once in a while they get down and pray once in a while. Are you predictable? Or are you in that category, as Frank Sinatra saying, I'm unpredictable and proud of it is the implication. There's someone in here who is very predictable. Mr. D. Party and the director of our French-speaking area, is predictable. He sets an ex- excellent example for all of us. At age 87, he is predictably at the office at 8.30 when the office opens every morning, Monday through Friday when the office is there. He has character. Are you that predictable? Do you have godly character? Just what do we mean by righteous character? Mr. Herbert Armstrong in the book Mystery of the Ages, page 67, wrote the following. This is very significant, very vital to understand because it's a part of God's purpose and plan for each and every one of us. The world doesn't understand that God is creating in us His perfect, righteous, godly character, and it's a process. Some religions believe that you accept Christ, you're saved, and that's it. And maybe you produce some fruit, you do good works, and do some good deeds. But they do not understand that the human nature that is a part of every human being must be conquered and replaced with divine nature. And that is a process of a lifetime. So Mr. Armstrong writes in Mystery of the Ages, page 69, quote, But what do we mean by righteous character? Perfect, holy, and righteous character is the ability in such separate entity to come to discern the true and right way from the false, to make voluntarily a full and unconditional surrender to God and His perfect way, to yield to be conquered by God, to determine even against temptation or self-desire to live and do the right. And even then, such holy character is the gift of God. It comes by yielding to God to instill His law, God's right way of life, within the entity who so decides and wills. You need to want the new covenant. 
You need to want God's laws to be written on your heart and on your mind. As Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10 and Jeremiah 31 plainly show are the keys to the new covenant. Actually, this perfect character comes only from God as instilled within the entity of His creation upon voluntary acquiescence, even after severe trial and test. Now, let me just rephrase it and put it in a way that perhaps you can understand even more fundamentally. Perfect, holy, righteous character is the ability to come to discern the true and right way from the fault. So, really, a first step in godly character development is, number one, that you must have the ability and the desire to discern what is right and what is wrong. And some don't care. They don't care what's right or what's wrong. They're just going to go their own way. They're going to sow their seeds, as we're warned, of course, in Galatians 6, those that sow sow to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But they ignore those realities. And so, number one, is that you must have the ability and the desire to determine what is right and wrong. Number two, is to make a voluntary and full unconditional surrender to God in His perfect way. That is, to embrace the truth, those right ways. Once you determine what is right, to commit yourself to do what is right. But even then, there will be temptations that will come along to yield, to be conquered by God, to three, that's my paraphrasing here, step number three, to determine even against temptation or self-desire to, li- to live and do the right. Number thirdly, resist temptation. Once you know what you should be doing, and again, take any simple uh, weakness or vice or false uh, bad habits that you have, whether it's smoking or whether it's watching too much television, you know, those temptations come along, but you resist the temptation. And then fourthly, you practice what is right and good until it becomes a part of your human nature. And even, of course, that process cannot be done, that is, apart from God. You need His Holy Spirit to enforce the truth and godly characteristics within you. So are you actively participating? My question is, are you actively participating in that process? Are you overcoming daily? We had the hymn years ago, standing on the promises. And I remember the one phrase that I I remember quite frequently, overcoming daily with the Spirit's sword, standing on the promises of God. Overcoming daily with the Spirit's sword, standing on the promises of God. You know, overcoming daily with the Spirit's sword. What is the Spirit's sword? It's the Word of God. You can't overcome without the Word of God. The Apostle Paul, remember, battled his human nature, and he applied the gift of discipline in his life, as we read in 1 Corinthians 9.27. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. Uh, John R.W. Stott, in his message to 1 Corinthians, uh, writes this about the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27. Quote, in verse 26 and 27, Paul is warning the Corinthians and himself of the need not to run aimlessly. Paul writes that he subdues his body literally. I lead my body around as a slave. And the Greek is doulagogo. You know, doulos, we know as uh, the Greek word for bond servant, that we are all doulos. We're all bond servants of Christ. 
And here's a verb form uh, that I lead my body around as a slave, dulagogo. So we are not to run aimlessly. We have a predictable, disciplined, purposeful life. Football coach Vince Lombardi, of course, was involved with the Green Bay Packers and very successful for many years as a coach. He said, quote, mental toughness is many things and rather difficult to explain. Its qualities are sacrifice and self-denial. Almost most importantly, it is combined with a perfectly disciplined will that refuses to give in. It's a state of mind, you could call it character in action. So I like that uh, quote. Now, there are other areas we need to discipline ourselves. One of those areas is that of bodily and mental health. Let's turn to 1 Timothy, the fourth chapter, 1 Timothy 4 and uh, verse 8. 1 Timothy 4 and verse 8. For bodily exercise profits little or for a little while, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. Or as the NIV has it, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. The New American Standard Bible has for bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things. We have an article coming up in the September-October 2005 Living Church of God by Dr. Douglas Winnale, entitled, Guard Your Health. I just want to read a little bit from that. It has long been said that we are what we eat. Today, many people are digging their own graves with their forks and spoons. God gave human beings biblical guidelines for the purpose of preventing disease and promoting health. The biblical instructions about health promote a way of life, not a search for some secret ingredient or magic cure. Those who truly believe that they should walk in the footsteps of Jesus Christ and really live by every word of God will strive to follow the fundamental biblical guidelines about diet. And that includes clean and unclean meats. And it's right in the section where he says, Be you holy, for I am holy. And Protestants think, well, oh, that's in Levit the book of Leviticus. We just do away with that. No, the book of Leviticus said... Love your neighbor as yourself, the seventh great commandment, Leviticus 19.18. And he says, be holy as I am holy. And the, the apostle Peter repeats that in First Peter. So we need to take a look at our diet and our health and discipline ourselves. As you know, most of uh, the reports that are coming out recently, our nation has a high level percentage of obesity. I was kidding, Mr. Uh, Daryl Lovelady from uh, Mississippi, that uh, Mississippi is the highest incident of obesity in the nation. I think it was about almost 30% uh, by whatever uh, uh, parameters have been used for that uh, conclusion. Now, Mr. Meredith has written Seven Laws of Radiant Health. Uh, as a booklet from way back, but he also listed those in the September-October 2003 Living Church News. Number one, Eat a proper diet. That's what we've heard from Dr. Winnale's article, and you'll read that when you receive your September-October LCN. Learn to exercise regularly and, when possible, vigorously. 
Mr. Meredith sets a wonderful example in that way. He is jogging about a mile and a half, five or six times a week as he can, and also lifts the weights to stay in good physical health and condition at age 75. He doesn't mind my mentioning. So we appreciate his example. Number three is get the proper amount of sleep and rest. Much of our nation is deprived of adequate sleep. Number four, that you ensure that you are getting enough sunshine and fresh air. Five, practice cleanliness and wear proper clothing. Number six, avoid bodily injury. A very important law that some neglect. And number seven, maintain a positive attitude. Do you have the character to apply those seven principles of good health? We have a responsibility to overcome. Let's uh, look at Revelation 2 and 3. Most of you know that seven times through these two chapters, the one, the revelator, Jesus Christ, says, He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. He that overcomes, as he says in verse 11 for chapter 2, for example, shall not be hurt by the second death. And then verse 17, to the church at Pergamos, says, To him that overcomes will I give to eat of the hidden manna. Verse 26, To he and he that overcomes and keeps my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. Chapter 3, verse 5, He that overcomes. Chapter 3, verse 11, uh, verse 12, He that overcomes will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. Something I'm looking forward to, that we'll be right at God's headquarters if we maintain a Philadelphia attitude. And then he goes on to say, even to the Laodiceans, to him that overcomes, verse 21, will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame. Yes, Jesus also overcame. We have to follow his example. Even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne, Revelation 3, verse 21. So God's plan of salvation as revealed through the annual festivals and holy days teach us to overcome the three great enemies, simply put, self, Satan, and society. Let's turn to James, the second chapter. And it takes discipline. It takes action. It takes, obviously, as we heard in the sermonette, that close contact with God to have the power to be able to overcome. James 2 and verse 26. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Now, he also had mentioned that the demons, verse 19, also believe in trembling. So what kind of faith do you have? Do you have a dead faith or do you have a faith that is demonstrated by God's fruits, the fruits of God's Holy Spirit in your life, of serving, of helping, of giving. But faith without works is dead. You see, the book of James, Luther called a book of straw. He didn't like it because it told you you had to do things. So you read Barclay's commentary on it, and he points out, and I forget exactly how many it is. I'll bring that out in the Bible study next week, perhaps. 
James gives us dozens of imperatives throughout that book. Over 50, I believe it is. And an imperative is, quote, an expressive, it is expressive of a command, entreaty, or exhortation. In other words, he gives us exhortations, active verbs. And I remember when we were writing scripts for the world tomorrow in our former association, and, and we were censored when we came to something that had to an active verb in it, because if it was an active verb, well, that smacked of gaining salvation by works. Well, that is a false, erroneous doctrine. Salvation is a gift, and that is biblical. But God gives us requirements that help us to grow and become like Him. Reminds me of one uh, quote here, if I can find it, by Julie Andrews. Um, oh, here it is over here. Uh, some people regard discipline as a chore. For me, it is a kind of order that sets me free to fly. British actress Julie Andrews. And so the Apostle James calls it the perfect law of liberty. James 1, verse 25. But here he tells us to do things. Now, if you do something, is that gaining salvation by works? Of course not. But it is an attitude of obedience and responsiveness to your Lord and to your Savior. Why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say, Jesus said. And we have to keep ourselves, of course, as he goes on to say in James 1, verse 27, that pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. So what is our part in this whole process of God's wonderful plan of salvation? One of the key scriptures is Philippians 2, verse 12. Philippians 2, verse 12. Many religions, traditional Christianity, do not understand, many, some do, but many do not understand their part in God's plan of salvation. They think, well, God does it all. Well, we don't have to do anything. Well, the days of unleavened bread show us, as Paul taught in 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, that we must keep the feast, the days of unleavened bread, and to put out the leavening of malice and wickedness and put in the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. How can you put in the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth unless you make an active conscious decision to do so and participate in the process and to keep the feast for that matter? Philippians 2.12 Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed... Oh, wait a minute. What's, what's this about obedience? Not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work... Oh, uh-oh. Maybe, uh, <clears throat> maybe Luther didn't notice that one in Paul's writings. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It's a sense of seriousness and sobriety and commitment and having that awe and reverence of who and what God is. But the key of it is in verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Well, you have a part in that process. Christ is the vine and we're the branches. We're connected to that vine. 
And He works in us. Mr. Meredith has emphasized Galatians 2.20, that it's Christ in us, the faith of Christ. And that's how we conquer. That's how we overcome. That's how we grow. And it says in John 15.8, I won't turn there, but by by much fruit uh, my Father is glorified. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. So God commands us to overcome. And we have challenges in the future. We have to prepare for difficult times, as we heard in the announcements. Uh, One of the Wall Street Journal headlines yesterday was, Damage to oil and gas facilities pushes U.S. closer to energy crisis. High prices at the pump stun gas-guzzling Americans, is the headline. Uh, The gas stations on my way out from my house right up here at uh, Idlewild and uh, Lebanon Road. The gas station was closed. They were all out of, all out of gas. The Charlotte Observer was pr- uh, pointing out how North Carolinians uh, were fearful. Are you going to be fearful when trying and tragic times come? And we do need to be praying for the gasoline situation because we have brethren who would have been with us today who are not here because they did not have the gasoline or the prices were too high for them to afford to come the long distance to meet with us today. And with the Feast of Tabernacles coming up in just less less than a couple months, uh, we need to be praying that that situation will stabilize and will not prevent the brethren from coming to the feast. Let's turn to Proverbs, the 22nd chapter, Proverbs 22. We have had instruction and warning several times in our publications to prepare for such times as we are experiencing now. Proverbs 22 and verse 3. A prudent man foresees the evil and hides himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. Do we foresee what is coming and will we be prepared for it? It's repeated in... Proverbs 27, verse 12. A prudent man foresees the evil and hides himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. Our Tomorrow's World magazine, January, February 2005, had an article by Mr. Meredith on, Are You Prepared? Quote, Events prophesied in your Bible are now beginning to occur with increasing frequency. In this work of the living God, we are able to warn you about what is going to happen soon. We are not talking about decades in the future. We are talking about Bible prophecies that will intensify within the next 5 to 15 years of your life. Please understand, we are not scaremongers. We love our fellow man. So it is our responsibility to warn our peoples ahead of time to prepare for the future. Most of our advice is spiritual in nature. However, in this editorial, I want to give you some common sense advice involving your physical survival and your financial well-being. He brings out the principle of Joseph in Egypt where God told him to set aside food for the future. Mr. Meredith writes, Obviously, God could have said, Don't worry or take any evasive action. I will simply deliver you no matter what happens. However, the Bible, which reveals the mind of God, indicates that God wanted Joseph and his people to go through the experience of setting aside extra foodstuffs and learning to do their part in preparing for a future calamity. As the Apostle James wrote, 
Faith without works is dead, James 2 and verse 20. So are you prepared? You know, Hurricane Katrina, if you were looking at the chart maps, when it was coming up to Florida on, I believe it was last Sabbath, the map showed the predictable pathway of Katrina coming right here to Charlotte and supposed to have arrived here in Charlotte 2 o'clock in the afternoon, I believe it was Tuesday afternoon. But what happened was, as it went up the East Coast, it took a 90-degree left turn across Florida and did not come here. But supposing it had, would you be prepared? Do you have enough water? Do you have batteries? Do you have an emergency kit? Do you have a plan to coordinate and to communicate with friends or relatives if, if uh, situations get dire? So Mr. Meredith continues, So we must each examine our own situation to determine what action we should take. Are we living in a low-lying coastal area where we may be in danger at a time of increasing hurricanes, tsunamis, or similar natural disasters? He wrote this in January. Well, before January. It was in our January, February, Tomorrow's World magazine. Do we have at least a week's supply of emergency food and water, flashlight batteries, a first aid kit, a battery-powered radio, prescription medications, and other essential items? Have we read the instructions from our nation or region about how to prepare for such emergencies as hurricanes, earthquakes, or terrorist attacks. I hope, brethren, that we will have the diligence, the discipline, the drive, the responsiveness to do that. Then we can help one another. We can be a part of a solution rather than a part of a problem. The May-June 2003 LCN had prepared for the times ahead. I feel it is incumbent upon me as God's servant to warn all of you brethren to realize this and to do your part to prepare for both the spiritual and physical emergencies that may soon be upon us. And then he gives us a, a section here, creating a disaster plan. Uh, there are disaster supply kits, and that's excerpted from the Federal Emergency Management Administration. Uh, are you ready? A guide to citizen preparedness, such as a car kit of emergency supplies, including food and water to keep stored in your car at all times. Make sure every member of your household knows how and when to shut off water, gas, and electricity at the main switches. Uh, pick, up, uh, pick a friend or relative who lives out of the area for household members to call to say that you are okay. So those are just some of the simple practical steps. These are areas of discipline and character we all need to apply. Now, what about spiritual discipline? Let's turn to Psalm 55 and verse 17. Will you continue to discipline yourself spiritually? Not like Julie Andrews said, you know, discipline isn't a chore. It's a way of freedom. I know there are some who uh, live their lives accidentally and uh, just depend on circumstances. They don't have a goal. They don't determine what their future is going to be or set goals. But here in Psalm 55, verse 17, we find a man who was disciplined spiritually. Psalm 55, 17, Evening and morning and at noon will I pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. As I asked before, does God know when you get up in the morning tomorrow that you'll be on your knees praying? 
Or as they say, I don't know, this guy is unpredictable. David was not unpredictable. God knew that he was going to be praying evening, morning, and at noon. Now again, there are circumstances in which our routines will change. Turn to Daniel, the sixth chapter. Again, you know these scriptures, Daniel 6 and verse 10. Was Daniel unpredictable? Did he apply spiritual discipline? When he was warned not to pray to God because he would be thrown into a den of lions, what did he do? He predictably prayed as he did before. Daniel 6, verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house and his windows being opened in his chamber toward Jerusalem. He kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. But we are coming up into times in which we will be facing terrors. It's like one woman said down there in New Orleans, I'm terrified. Will you be terrified or will you be trusting in God? Will you have the faith, the confidence, and the control? Will you trust God? Mr. Bonjour mentioned Micah 6, 8, that God requires us to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. We need to fast regularly to keep ourselves humble, as it says in James 4. I won't turn there, but the headline is, Humility Cures Worldliness. We need to maintain a positive and a tranquil mind. Philippians 4, verse 6, you can turn there. Again, so important for the disasters we're going to be facing here soon and are already facing. Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing. Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. Yes, pray for the victims of Hurricane Katrina. I feel my prayers make a difference. I hope yours, you feel the same way. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. One of Mr. Apartian's favorite verses, Whatsoever things are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, of a good report, there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. And those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do and the God of peace will be with you. Our constant walk with God and our personal relationship with Christ will guarantee peace of mind. Rudyard Kipling wrote a poem, if, I won't read the whole poem, but I think you know and can recognize the first line. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, will you keep your head in times of trial and upset and disaster. He says, if you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet triumph and disaster and treat those two impostors just the same, if you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, or watch the things you gave your life to broken, and stoop and build them up with worn-out tools. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue, or walk with kings, nor lose the common touch, if neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you but none too much, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with sixty seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it, and which is more, you'll be a man, my son. 
there is a poem that's been written by a woman called If for Girls. You can get that on the Internet. But we need to maintain a positive and tranquil mind. Let's turn to Galatians, the fifth chapter, Galatians 5. We need the gift of sound-mindedness. We need the gift of discipline. We need the gift of self-control. These are the fruits of God's Spirit. Verse 22, Galatians 5, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Now, again, that some of the translations have it, self-control. So I hope, brethren, that we have that gift. If we don't, we need to ask God for more discipline. Are you organized? Do you lose things regularly? Are you discombobulated, as some would say? Uh, Or do you have a routine, a standard, a procedure where you are organized? I know when we were just visiting uh, this past week up at Carl Sandburg's home up in Flat Rock, uh, his wife was uh, an expert in goat uh, production, and even the goats today are still uh, preferred and uh, desired by people. But she had, as we went through the house had all these little files, this little, I guess, maybe six, three-by-five cards or whatever, everything all documented of the genealogy and the genetics of all of her goats. I mean, just just very organized. It wasn't uh, wasn't disorganized, although Carl Sandburg took about 50 magazines a week and and, uh, about 20 or 30 newspapers, so they were piled all over the place. So I don't know that they were so organized, but he did... uh, worked through the night and slept uh, from about 6.30 in the morning to 10.30 in the morning and stayed up the rest of the time writing so he could get a Pulitzer Prize. Well, he didn't do it for that purpose, but he did get a Pulitzer Prize in history in writing about Abraham Lincoln and a Pulitzer Prize for poetry as well. Let's turn finally to uh, 2 Timothy 1. Well, it's not final. I'm sorry. It's the next to the final one. Sorry to disappoint you all. Second uh, Timothy again. Second Timothy, the first chapter. We read verse seven that God has not given us the spirit of timidity, but of power and love and of a sound mind or discipline. But let's read verse six. Wherefore I put you in remembrance that you stir up the gift that is in you by the putting on of my hands, or as the Moffat translation has it, hence I would remind you to rekindle the divine gift which you received when my hands were laid upon you. John Stott writes the following. He says, However much or little we may have received from God, either directly in natural and spiritual endowment, or indirectly through parents, friends, and teachers, we must still apply ourselves in active self-discipline to cooperate with God's grace to keep fanning the inner fire into flame. So the Greek word that is in here about stirring up has the idea of kindling or rekindling a flame. Otherwise, we shall never be the men and women God wants us to be or fulfill the ministry He has given us to exercise. And that's from John R. W. Stott. Mr. Partian wrote in this world ahead, Are we doing our part zealously after he discussed the Katrina tragedy? Are we ourselves submitting to God totally? 
Hurricane Katrina is one of the wake-up calls not only to Americans but to all mankind. The question is, will mankind wake up? And will all of God's people around the world wake up? Each of us individually holds the answer. Remember Christ's words and what He, what he said in Mark 13:37. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. Are we spiritually awake? We are living in exciting and dangerous times. And God's work has exhorted us to prepare for stressful times. We've had instruction in the LCN. We've had instruction in tomorrow's world to prepare for potential disasters. We need to prepare spiritually. Some of you know the serenity prayer of Reinhold Neubauer in, as he presented it in 1942. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. I hope we can pray that and have the wisdom to know the difference. Let's turn to, finally, this is the final one, Psalm 46. When future disasters hit the United States or Canada or the United Kingdom or Australia or New Zealand, will you panic? Or will you maintain discipline? Will you be terrified? Or will you maintain a positive and tranquil mind? Will you be a part of the solution or a part of the problem? Remember Romans 10:17 says love comes by that is faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We all need faith to face the future. But God has given us these wonderful promises and Psalm 46 is one of those promises we can claim. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore will not we fear, though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with swelling thereof, Selah. We will not fear, because God will be with us. Now is the time to grow in faith. It's the time to exercise self-control, determination, and sound-mindedness. Thank God for the gift of discipline. Let's fulfill our mission with enthusiasm, with zeal, because Christ will continue to guide us and help us in completing His mission. Because He said, as we read in Matthew 28, 18, All authority, all power is given to me in heaven and in earth.